0: Thanks, Sarah. Well, good morning and welcome to church. love to add my welcome to Marcus's and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking through this book of Revelation. Uh, it started out with some great words of encouragement. It said this and they're on the screen. Blessed are the ones who read aloud the word of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. So I take it there's a good reason uh, to be reading this and for us to be spending time going through it. And the first four chapters of the book of Revelation have been pretty plain sailing. Uh, we've heard of some letters to some churches which have some implications for us. Some of the things that Jesus has been saying to those churches had been strong. Others had been encouraging. And, and here we are thinking through where are we at in these kind of areas. Then last week, things got a little bit different We got ushered into this throne room where we saw our amazing throne at the center and God the Father sitting on the throne and these creatures around it. We saw a slaughtered lamb walk up to the throne, take a scroll out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne and we're like, what is going on here? And we saw this reality that the backing track of heaven changed because of the slaughtered lamb. As you come to the book of Revelation, there are so many things that just are not clear, that are tricky to understand. And you know, if you walk in going, look, I think I've got Revelation sorted, um, you're probably fooling yourself and everyone else as you try and think through that. But there are some things that are very clear. That's what I want to help us to do today is to work out what is clear. We will have different views amongst us and different interpretations of what goes on. But the thing that's been clear up until this point is that at the center of all human history is this lamb on the throne, Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection. He walks up to the scroll, up up to the one on the throne, and takes out of his hand a scroll. And the burning question in everyone's minds is, what's in the scroll? What is in the scroll? Well, why don't we pray as we come and hear what happens next. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would bless us as we hear it. That you'd hear it not as um, some preacher's word, but as what you are saying to us, your view of the world and how we are to see it. And that you would confront us and comfort us with the reality of who Jesus is. We pray this in his great name. Amen. When I finished my last year of high school in Australia, um, I was given a mark. They called it a University Admissions Index. And basically what they did was they ranked everyone uh, in the state of New South Wales, which I lived in, um, and you kind of got a ranking out of 100 and, and you got to get into the university courses that kind of had higher marks if you got a higher mark yourself. This number was the number that changed your life. Right? As, as a, uni- as a um, high school student, it was a lot riding on the number. Uh, I originally had wanted to be a vet. I was thinking about being a vet, but decided I had to work too hard because to get into vet science, you needed a UAI of 98 that means top two percent of the state and i'm like yeah that's not me that's not me uh, medicine uh was 95 psychology was 92 an arts degree 50 right <laughs> pretty much half the people could get into that that that's sorry if you've got an arts degree <laughs> the funny thing is that's what i've ended up with two of anyway but the way you got that number uh was in the past sent in the mail they put it in an envelope and it got sent through the postman and kind of came to your house. The problem with New South Wales is big, it took people kind of time to get that and everyone wanted to know their future and so they, they made this way that you could find out your mark sooner. Back then the internet was still dial-up modems so if you wanted to check the internet you had to Ning, make that noise and wait and then someone would pick up the phone and be like, hello, and you're Like oh, you've ruined it, I've got to start again. So what they did was they had a telephone call-in service. Where you could ring up on the day they came out and you, could, you finally got onto the line and you'd, you'd, you'd ring through, and then they would go through and you'd put in then like your, your student number, all these on the phone and hit star and then say received. It took so long. I remember sitting on the floor in my parents' office under the table. I don't know why I was under the table. Maybe I was worried about what would fall or how bad it would be. And I'm there, I'm going through, putting all the numbers in, your PIN number. And then this kind of voice comes on. It says, you have received a university admissions index. And you're like, I don't know why they sound like a robot, but that's what they did. And then it says, your UAI for 1999, which is the year I was there, was, and there's this big pause, I'm like, come on! I'm waiting. And then they just deliver the numbers just one at a time, down to to two decimal places. And I'm like, please be a nine, please be a nine, please be a nine, right? And it says seven. I'm like, oh, seven, that's not what I wanted. And like, oh, I'm kind of frustrated. My heart sank. And then there's the next number, and it's just waiting. And you're like, come on! And I'm like, please be a nine, please be a nine. they're like, eight. I'm like, oh, close. That was close. And I've got no idea what the other numbers were from that point on. Um, But all I knew was that I didn't get as high as I wanted to get. There was this sense of reality of the judgment coming for my lack of study in all my last years of high school. Now, only one person in our whole school got in their 90s. um, So it kind of was, was hard to get that sort of number. But this moment weighed up all of my schooling and spat out a number. As we get to Revelation 6, the burning question for us is, What's in the scroll? What will it be? What is about to happen with the plans and purposes of God? Whatever it is, it's only the slaughtered Son of God who can open this scroll and enact what is inside, the words written on the inside and the out. And the thing that justified him to be able to do it was his life. The Son of God's death in our place. It was so important, it eclipses even God's creative effort of, of creating all the universe, what was about to happen and and who Jesus is. Literally, this is the most important thing in the world. What is on the scroll? That's what we're left with, with these visions of revelation at this point. Now, if you knew what was in that scroll, what impact do you think it would have on your life? You might come here today and think, well, I wasn't really thinking about what was in the scroll. I've not really thought much about who God is and what he's doing in the world. I want to put it to you that what's about to be revealed will refocus the way you see the world. It'll refocus your priorities and your purpose. And I want to put it to you again that I think it's going to show us a very different view of Jesus than we walked into church thinking of this morning. I need to warn you, that what's about to be revealed here is not all good news, but it's being revealed for our good. So come and step with me into what God has to say in Revelation 6 verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. As we begin Revelation 6, we find out, much like my high school results phone call, that the information about the scroll comes slowly. It's a seal is open and you can imagine this scroll is kind of like a newspaper rolled up and there are seven seals keeping it shut and what we see is that the first one is peeled off. It's like that first digit coming through and I get to find out maybe what it is but not all of it and I've got to wait a little bit longer and in this whole scene we get to slow down and we don't actually get to see what's on the scroll yet. You're like, oh, but we see what happens as these seals are broken kind of one by one. And as we get to these first four seals, we see they're kind of linked. Uh, They're linked together because we literally see that in the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now if you want to take some notes, that's a great point to write down. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sounds ominous, right? And it is. In God's sovereignty. I didn't prep that. But God did. The first thing we see is a white horse Uh, and and this white horse has a rider now white throughout the book of revelation has been a symbol for conquering those that were clothed in white in the previous letters to the churches will be the ones who conquer the ones that last the ones who are victorious and so white in the book of revelation is this symbol of conquering who, who have this a military victory and we know it's a military kind of vision that's going on here because the one on the horse is carrying a bow And wearing a crown, it's a king. So there's some picture of a king conquering the world. We're not sure if it's good or bad. Then we see the second scroll and it's a red, fiery horse. Red, fiery horses are never good. If you come across a red, fiery horse, my encouragement is walk away slowly. This time in verses 3 and 4, it's not military power, but civil war. Then we read verses 3 to 4 and they say this, Then another horse went out, a red fiery one. Its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. Happy Father's Day, right there. You're like, what is going on here? This seal is broken. Is this, this peace being taken and people being slaughtered across the whole earth? And you're thinking, what is this? When is this? What is going on? The restraints have been removed. law and order has been taken away. And there is no peace on earth. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it, when law and order are taken away. People are free to do whatever they want and civil unrest breaks out and we see that time and time again across society. Then the third seal is opened. This time it's a black horse with scales in its rider's hands. You're like, what is going on here? Well, it's painting a picture of society where a handful of wheat costs a full day's wage. Let's think about it. A handful of wheat is basically what I need to make myself food for myself. If I'm going to go and work for a day, that means I can only feed one person in my family. It's saying that there's an incredible economic division. There'll be this point where, you know, it costs so much. You're like, oh, I'm living that now. I'm feeling that now, right? I'm just trying to buy lettuce and it costs me $8. But then there's this picture that oil and wine are still flowing freely. In this third seal with a black horse, uh, jesus is pointing to times where this, there'll be hardship for many people won't be able to afford to feed their family but for others they'll be rich and privileged and live in luxury of oil and wine and there's a sense where you, you kind of think that happens when civil unrest goes on when when nations come and take out other nations and then things just go to custard and people take on their own and some hoard and some are in poverty and then we meet the final horseman of the apocalypse and the horse is pale green now, these days, pale green is kind of a hip and in color, right? The pale green is that nice olive and you think, oh, that would be nice. It's a nice pastel color. The pale green of this horse is the color a person goes when they've been dead a couple of weeks. That green, right? Oh, yuck. It's that pastel, gross, gray, green, horrible reality. What's on view here is death. Look at verse 8. I looked and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades or Hell was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. As these first four seals are broken, they're they're describing a reality of life that we experience today and that has been experienced really from the death and resurrection of Jesus until today. You hear these descriptions and you can think of times where tyrants come in by military power and conquer. Genghis Khan. And and then you can think of times where um, there's civil unrest in the world and all sorts of atrocities happen and where people hoard for themselves their richness and their, their overflow and their blessing and others are in poverty and where people are killed by sword, by famine, by plague. This is not a picture of events that we are waiting for but a pictorial look at the way the world is while we're waiting for the scroll to be opened. These seals show us the way the world is. Just yesterday, I was thinking through this sermon and kind of um, procrastinating on Facebook as you do, uh, and up popped this photo. Have a look at it. I don't know if you can see it clearly. It's a picture of a car with two wheels missing. This was on the um, One Tree Hill community group. It said this, Had the two wheels stolen at some point during the night last night? If anyone saw anything, please let me know. Like, wow, the wheels of their car got stolen overnight. The highlighted comment that was there below this said this, and I'll read it to you. It's on the screen. The world is now in the state of chaos. Stressed populations and authoritarian governments with no care, no responsibility, and no accountability. Where are we heading? Why are humans like this? Where do we start to change humans' behaviour so as we can get all along, be happy, free, in thought and in mind? I'm like, this is exactly (laughs) a cut-down version of what Jesus is saying with these seals being opened. The reality of the world that we live in. And so often we go, why is the world like this? How long will it go on? How can God let this happen? You might be here today experiencing some of the brokenness of this world some of the evil that Revelation describes, to varying degrees in this room, we might be going through some of those things. And as we look at the news and we look around the world, surely we go, isn't this what has been happening? At least for the past 2,000 years. Jesus is telling us at this point, through these seals being broken, that this, the reality of those things going on, those four horsemen of the apocalypse, is the expectation of normal life, while we wait for the scroll to be opened, while we're waiting for God's plan to come to fruition, the, best, the rest of what God is going to do in His world, things aren't going to get better and better and better. The world we live in is a broken world who is hell-bent on, on putting ourselves as ruler of our lives. And when we do that, it's not going to go well. What Jesus is telling us here, firstly, is this. Do not be surprised at the atrocities of the world. Don't be surprised so that they shake your confidence in God. Recognize this is how the world will be because they're people who have turned their backs on God because we are people who have turned our backs on God. Then we get to the fifth seal. The fifth seal. And despite its dark background, we start to see a ray of light shining through. Come with me to verse 9 of chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw... Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on earth and avenge our blood? So they were given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. As the fifth seal is opened on this scroll, the scroll is not yet open, but the fifth seal is, we see a reality that people who trust in Jesus are going to be killed and have been killed. People who want to keep putting Jesus first, who want to keep holding on to Him. There'll be people in the world that will even die for the sake of His name. He's showing us that, so we might know that is never in vain. It is never in vain. Those who've been killed for their loyalty to the news of who Jesus is. Those who are waiting for justice to come on those who've persecuted them and they've seen death because of the word of God. Who've laid their life in the hands of Jesus and served him with their all and been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they have given. That they will see justice. That it will come. But the answer is not yet. The answer is there's more to die. And that's kind of a scary thing to hear for us who do believe in Jesus, because the normal expectation of every Christian is that we'll put Jesus first in every way. The Christian life is not a life of comfort and cruisiness and going, oh, I'm living it up. It's a life where we expect to suffer like our Saviour suffered. As we lay our lives down, as we sacrifice our all. The world around is going to push us aside and down. The normal expectation of every Christian is that we ought to be ready to die for proclaiming the truth of Jesus. There is more to come, Jesus says. But in this picture, they're gathered under the altar. And it's an odd place to be. As I was gathered under the table receiving that phone call, here, those ones who've died for the sake of the kingdom and gathered under the altar where Jesus' blood was spilt, They're protected by the reality that Jesus has died for them and that he will come and bring judgment and victory in the world. But it is not that time yet. But while they wait, we are told, while they wait, they are given a white robe. Now remember, white, it's the color of victory. It's the color of winning. It's not just a chemist uniform. That's not what the white robe is. It's a a picture of conquering. And so as this fifth seal is opened by the Lamb, we're told not to expect justice here and now. For a time will come when God will bring his justice. We are told there is more time now for laying down our lives for the gospel. And that's then when we get to the sixth seal. And I have to say, it is by far the scariest. Earthquakes, the sun goes black, the moon turns to blood, The stars of heaven fall to the earth and the sky is rolled up like a scroll. You can see it's picture language because I don't know how you roll the sky up like a scroll. It's not a scroll. You can't kind of do that with the clouds. They don't work that way. It's picture language of the end of all things. This seal is giving us information about judgment day, the final day. And what we read is that everyone on earth at that point, when those things happen, when the sun is black and the moon turns to blood and the stars fall from to the earth and the sky is rolled up like a scroll, everyone will be afraid. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? At this moment, what Jesus is saying is that humanity would rather be crushed by rocks than face the judgment of God. It's picture language of what it will be like on that last day to face God on our own two feet, to come before him without the blood of Jesus and to stand before the creator of the universe for what we have done. There's something very scary about the true and living God. It's not because he's an angry God. It's not because he's out to get us in any way, shape or form. He's not. But his wrath comes because he's angry at us because we have angered him. We've rejected him as God. We've said we don't want you in our life. We've lived our lives in our natural state in rebellion against him. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've had to face the music? You've been in trouble. You might hear the siren behind you and you're like, oh, looked at the speedo and gone, I've got to pay. What will I say? For me, I remember very clearly standing outside the principal's office, knowing that I was going to get in a lot of trouble. I could be expelled for what I'd done. I'd shot an air rifle at a blackboard. I knew that it it was bad. But if it came to me facing the judgment of the principal or being crushed by rocks, I'd take the judgment of the principal every day. (laughs) Will I I go into the principal and face what he's going to do and know that I could be... I was um, suspended for four days. That was the outcome I had to deal with my parents. and I felt huge kind of feeling in my stomach. But if it was between that... And crushed by rocks. Every day I'm going to choose the principle. Every day. Whether it's the police, whether it's prison, no matter what it is. Jesus is saying on this day you'll choose the rocks every time. The best way forward, the way that makes you think, yes, this is the best way for me is to be crushed by rocks rather than face the wrath of the true and living God. No matter who you are in the world's eyes, whether you're rich or poor, powerful or weak, popular or detestable, Everyone would rather be crushed by rocks than face the true and living God on the day he comes. This picture here in this sixth seal is of the end. It's of that final reality of the judgment of God. But the thing Jesus wants to show us might make us feel even more uncomfortable than we already do. He wants to show us a picture of himself, all these atrocities, the unrest, the evil, the brokenness, while they all come about because of humanity's rebellion against God, what we see here is that every single one of them is the plan of Jesus. We're used to describing Jesus as love, which He is. Uh, This is love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave Himself up as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's what John says in 1 John 4. We're used to hearing of Jesus' kindness and compassion, which he totally has. We look at the way he acts and the way he he loves those and the way he looks at Lazarus when Lazarus is dead and speaks into the grave and says, Lazarus, come out through the tears of weeping and the strength of death and Lazarus rises from the dead. we, We get his love, his power, his compassion and his incredible humility. Not considering equality with God something to be sought after, but Coming and becoming, taking on the nature of a human, being humiliated to death, even death on a cross. What an incredible, loving, kind, compassionate, humble saviour we have. But that's not all Jesus is. And today he wants to make clear to us a full picture of himself. Everything that happens in the breaking of these seals happens because Jesus does it. It's attributed to the plan and purpose of Him. Every instance, it's the Lamb who opens the seal and those things come forth. Jesus kicks off what each seal describes. The military conquest of the tyrants of history, we need to understand their crown was given to them by Jesus. Their bow and army was given to them by Him. The civil unrest that has happened throughout our world was allowed to happen by Jesus. The sword To complete that unrest was given by him. The degeneration of society was begun by the sovereign permission giving of Jesus. Just as those who faithfully trust in Jesus are given a white robe from him, and they will be given victory by Jesus, so we must see that Jesus is sovereignly in control over everything. Even death and Hades were given their power by him. Jesus is loving, yes. He is incredibly kind and generous and compassionate. But he is also sovereignly in control of everything on the face of the planet. There is nothing outside his control. It's not merely the wrath of the Father on the throne that the world is terrified of. But in verse 17, they are terrified. They would rather be crushed by rocks than face the wrath of the Lamb. Did you see that? We must not have a view of Jesus, that he's our chummy buddy. He's the one that's just going to make my life a little bit better, an optional addition to make life nice. You can't come before him and be like, ah, it's cool, we'll get on, cheers, Jesus, everything's sweet, and just kind of roll on with life. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who will bring judgment on the whole world and is in control of everything. Everything. There's something both scary and comforting with that reality, though. The reality is that he's in control of all, and that is scary. But the thing that's comforting is that there is not one thing outside of his control. Not one. Everything that happens, every wrong, every disaster, every evil, every twist and turn of life, happens because Jesus wants it to happen. Now, nowhere does the Bible say that he is the author of evil, He's not responsible for the evil or wrong, but it is part of his plan. He allows it. More than that, he plans it to happen at the choice of people who rebel against him. you just got to look at the book of Job to see that that God is there and Satan comes in and God says, what are you doing? He's like, I'm prowling the earth looking for someone to kind of tempt. God says, try Job. God's idea. But he then limits how far he can go, only this far. So Satan goes and does that. And then he comes back and says, ah, he didn't give up because, well, you, you limited me. And he says, okay, you can go a bit further. Again, he limits. What we see is the sovereign control of everything in the universe is at the hands of Jesus. But that's so incredibly comforting, isn't it? Because the one who laid down his life for us and who said, it is finished, and who said, come and I will give you rest is the one who is in control. That means his plans always come to fruition. He is trustworthy. He is dependable. His promises are worth holding on to. He's promised that we might walk willingly to our death, but it's okay because he's coming back. Well, that means we can do it because we know he's in control of all. And No one else, no other strength, no other power, no other anything else in heaven and earth can pull us away from the plan of Jesus. That is so incredibly comforting. It means we might sacrifice everything for his kingdom. That we can do it knowing that our future is secure because nothing and no one can change his plans. He is not dependent on anyone. And that's why chapter seven is such a great chapter. We get an interlude between the seals. We want to see the seventh one open and maybe then the scroll will open, but we get an interlude. The sixth seal ended with a question Before Jesus, who can stand? Who can stand in his great judgment? And then we see chapter 7 and the mercy of God. Look at 7 verse 2. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now there's seals everywhere here, right? And not like the, the o type, right? There's seals on, on the kind of scrolls. And then there's a sealing of the servants I don't think it's a literal wax seal, uh, but there's this picture of a sealing. Of a and what we're saying is that God has not brought judgment on the earth because it's not yet time, because God has not yet sealed all the servants of our God. They've not yet had that seal. So what's he talking about? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord does not delay His promises, some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to Repentance. God's judgment day, Jesus' return, hasn't happened because God wants people to come and trust in him. And what Revelation shows us a picture of is that, that God is in pictorial language, or Jesus is having his angels hold back judgment on the whole earth until whole earth until all the servants of God, all those that will come to him, are sealed. Now, what is this seal? Well, it's interesting that Paul talks about sealing in, in Ephesians 1:13. In him you are also sealed, in Jesus with a promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Or Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. I take it that the seal that John is viewing here, this seal on those who have been, um, who, who are, what is it? the servants of God, sealed on their foreheads, is the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's the reality. And so chapter 7 points to the reality that happens at the beginning of each person's Christian life. The moment they say, I trust Jesus, that they they come to Him, they're sealed with the Spirit of God. And God moves them from darkness to life. It's interesting, isn't it, that that we were talking about what is to happen and what will happen with the end time judgment, and then chapter 7 goes back to talking about something that happens... Before all of that, it happens when people trust in Christ. Rather than a chronological picture of what's going to happen in the future, the book of Revelation is a picture that John is pointing out different parts of the reality of what's going on. What's going on now as we wait for the scroll to be unfolded? What will happen in the future as God's judgment comes? And what's happened when we've come to trust in Christ? And what's going on as people keep proclaiming the news of Jesus and being sealed by the Spirit. What we see is this, life will be hard. That's seals one to five. Life's going to be hard. But judgment is coming, seal six. But God is holding back that final judgment, chapter seven, until all the people he's going to bring to himself are sealed with his spirit. And that's been going on since the day of Pentecost until Jesus' return. Then we get a picture of what that looks like. All of those who will be sealed with the spirit. John hears a number. Notice he doesn't see, but he hears a number spoken of all those that are sealed. That number is 144,000. Now, I've got to be honest. When I'm reading through it, I'm like, awesome, it's going to be massive. And I'm like, 144,000? I'm like, that's, that's not even 10% of Auckland. Like That's, that's small, isn't it? 144,000 doesn't seem many. But then you start to think, well, what is he talking about with 144,000? Then he goes through and lists all the tribe of Israel. Did you see that? All the tribes are listed out. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 and he kind of lists all... Tra- Did you notice anything odd if you know your Old Testament well? Did you notice anything? Dan was missing. No tribe of Dan in that 12. Also, tribe of Joseph's in there twice. There's Joseph and Manasseh, Joseph's son. Like, what's going on here? There's some picture of what... What is this picture of the 12 tribes? They're not really the 12 tribes as originally said. Now, Dan, they kind of had a moment of unfaithfulness and maybe dan's been pushed out maybe this is a picture of the faithful israel but why twelve thousand? well it's interesting the book of revelation points something out at the very end at revelation 21 as god is describing the new people of god what the what everyone who is brought to god in that last day will look like he describes them as a city listen to how he describes them in verse 16 of chapter 21 the city is laid out in a square its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. He then measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. Now remember, Revelation is, is picture language. You can't kind of come in and just go, this is literally everything that's going on. We're going to see in a moment when the, the white robe is washed white by the blood of the lamb. You're like, that, that can't happen. Like, that's not literal. Okay, just try it. Every time, I guarantee you, it'll be red. It will not be white. Here is a picture saying that the people of God are like a city. And the size of that city is 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. 144 cubits. And here, John hears from the throne room of God that the people of God, at this point in John 7, there'll be 144,000 of them. Lots like the fullness of the people of God. Twelve tribes of Israel all gathered together. Those who've come to Christ and are in him if you look very carefully, John only hears that number of people, and then he sees something different. Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. The picture of those that are sealed with the Spirit of God is a picture of all the people of God. It's not limited to 144,000. It's a picture of everyone who's come to trust in Jesus. It's like John has heard the number, and it's a big number. It's like 12,000 and and the 12 tribes of Israel all coming together. And and then he looks up, opens his eyes, and it's like he's realized he's had a a massive grandstand. And he's heard the number of people gathered and thought, man, that's big, 144,000 at least. And he sees, and there's like grandstand upon grandstand upon grandstand upon grandstand around the throne room of God. It does not end. Vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could count, standing before the throne and the Lamb. That is where our God is taking humanity, bringing people to himself. There is more to be done. As Jesus speaks to John at that point, He's just thinking through how long, how long will we go through this suffering? How long will these things go on? The answer is there's more to be done. Because people from every tribe and language and people and nation will come and trust in Jesus. We're we're told four things about those who are sealed. First thing we're told, so four things about those who are sealed. First thing, they've come out of the great tribulation. Now, that's not Revelation's way of speaking of something that lies ahead of us. But they've come out of the reality of what life is like, what those four horsemen of the apocalypse have been bringing about in all of human history. Um, It's the realities of a world turned against Jesus. That's what they've persevered through. They're then clothed in white robes. In other words, they're able to stand before Judgment Day, victorious because of what Jesus has done. Their robes are white, number three, because they've been washed in the Lamb's blood. Remember that song that changed heaven's backing track? Because Jesus was slaughtered. You purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. The sealed are only here because of what Jesus has done, that he's died in their place, that he's taken the punishment from the wrath of God that that we deserve on him. Christians, we, we, we don't think we're better people. Just that we've entrusted ourselves to a better king, one who died for us who will judge us and find us forgiven, not because of anything we have done, but because he's washed our clothes white with his blood. And the fourth thing we hear about these people who are gathered, the people of God, the sealed, is in verse 15 of chapter 7. It's the future they have to look forward to. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They'll no longer hunger. They'll no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a picture. What a picture this will be for those who've been sealed with the Spirit of God that we have to look forward to that makes the troubles and the struggles and the hardship and even dying for the sake of the gospel worth it. If you trust in Jesus, that future is for you. It's a future in the presence of the King of kings. The Lord of lords, with him that will not end. It's enjoying everything that flows from complete and unchallenged exercise of his sovereign and saving rule. There's no more sickness or pain or death. It's all gone. The future is utterly secure because of the one who shelters them. It's it's, It's Jesus, the one who's been given all authority. It's a future of complete satisfaction and a future under the shepherding care of the enthroned lamb who will give us life that doesn't perish, spoil or fade. As we move through the book of Revelation, we're going to see over the coming weeks that the same events are on view multiple times. Uh, that the, the John is showing us through what Jesus is saying, pictures of the end. This picture will be filled out even more in Revelation 21, and we'll see it in even more detail. But here we get a glimpse before we then take it back in to see what the scroll says next week. But as you hear everything that Jesus has to say, we need to remember the words that he started with in Revelation 1. Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. I don't know where you are with God today. I don't know whether you're wanting to run, having run, checking Him out, maybe coming closer to Him. There's really only two responses we can have to what Jesus shows us here. The first is to listen, it's to hear this picture of the present and the future, it's to accept. The hard reality that God is in control, that His plans and purposes, though different from what ours might be, are good, and to entrust ourselves to Him, to cling to Him, the one who offers us a robe washed in the blood of the Son of God. That'll mean you can trust Him through the ups and downs of life. It'll mean you'll serve Him no matter what the cost. It'll mean you praise Him now for sealing us with His Spirit including us in the great multitude that will be gathered around the throne. It'll mean that you can look forward to that last day, as bumpy as the ride might be, when we will no longer hurt, when we will no longer have hunger and thirst, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is the future. The second response is to say, I don't like the Jesus that I see. I think I know better. Let me end today with a story that I think will help us understand the way we need to approach what Jesus is saying. I want you to imagine on this Father's Day, a father whose son has had a a terrible, life-threatening accident. He's rushed off to emergency. The diagnosis is that he needs a specialist surgeon to perform the operation to save his life. There's only one surgeon who is available who could do this operation. They ring him and they wait. They wait and they wait. The day goes on. It's almost been a full day, and the son is slowly dying. His chances of survival are getting slimmer and slimmer. Finally, the surgeon comes in. It's been almost a whole day. The father is furious, as you can imagine. He looks at the surgeon as he comes in in his gown. He's like, where have you been? Don't you care about my son? If it was your son's life, I bet you would have come straight away. The surgeon looks back at him and says, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can do what I'll do. The father is fuming. He walks away so angry at the surgeon. A number of hours go past. And then the surgeon walks out of the operating theatre. The father stands up, looks at him, but he doesn't say anything. Other than, look, I've I've got to go. He walks out the door. At this point, the father is absolutely ropeable. He loses the plot, starts yelling at the surgeon. What kind of country is this where surgeons can act like that? You think you're above everyone else. How dare you treat me and my son like this? The surgeon walks through the doors, gets in his car and drives off. The father turns to the nurse, tears of anger rolling down his face. Who does he think he is? Until the nurse looks at the father and says with a soft voice, surgeon's son died four days ago. He was actually on his way to the funeral when you called. He left his family after the funeral and came to operate on your son, and now he's going to go back to his wife and deal with a family who are in a terrible mess because his son has just died. Let me ask you, if you were that father, how would you feel at that moment, seeing how angry you'd been at the surgeon, thinking that you'd known what was going on? Would you feel ashamed, crushed for your stupidity and arrogance, humiliated for thinking that you knew what was going on in the world and you could stand in a position of judgment over this surgeon? Would you be saying, how dare that surgeon treat me this way? Or would you be incredibly humbled that you didn't know what was actually going on? Brothers and sisters, when you think about God in our world, it's so easy to stand and cry out and say, why isn't he coming to fix things up? Why does he permit and allow evil? Why does he open these seals of judgment? Who does God think he is? How dare he? I don't want anything to do with him. Because we think we know everything. But friends, Jesus is the God above all, who knows all, who sees all and plans all. And we can stand and shake our fists at him, but we'd be missing the incredible reality of who he is and that everything he is doing is for the good of those who love him. It's what Paul says to us in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Paul goes on to say, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, clothed in white. Through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, today as we hear the seals of Revelation 6 and 7 opened up for us, do not be like a father who was brought to ruin because of his own foolishness, shaking his fist at that surgeon. Do not stand and shake your fist at God and say, how dare you? But recognize the incredible cost of Jesus' death in our place, the blood of the Son that has been paid so that you and I could be forgiven. Recognize we don't have the full, full, full picture. We don't see it all. We don't know everything. But we do know the one who does know everything. And he says, trust me. Friends, we can have confidence because the one who unleashes the seals is the same one who laid down his life for us. So as we hear what Jesus has to say today, run to him, not from him. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you do not treat us as we deserve, that Jesus has laid down his life and that we could be forgiven. We confess that so often we look at the world and we don't understand what's going on. We think we know all and we sometimes shake our fists either physically or metaphorically at you, and we are sorry. Help us to see the incredible cost you have borne, that we can stand forgiven before you. Help us to see the reality that Jesus is in control, and help us to see what an amazing joy it is to look forward to an eternity that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Today we ask that you would fix our eyes on the true picture of Jesus, not what we would like to see him as, but as he is, And see how scary and comforting that is at the same time. And live our lives in joy. Looking forward to the day he comes back. Sealed with your spirit. Confident to live for you in everything. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.